You're tuned in to Holy Smokes, Cigars, Catholicism, and Conversation. Let my prayer arise in thy sight as incense. I'm your host, Dustin Quick, and this is episode 88, SXPX Roundtable with Dom from the Logos Project, Andrew Bartell, and Mr. John Salza. Guys, before we get into tonight's episode, just a word about my sponsor, Havana Palace, on Huron Church Road in Windsor, Ontario. For the best service and finest cigars, go see Caesar and Eli. They treat all their customers like family. If you would be so kind as to go to facebook.com slash Havana Palace and give their page a like, I and we would greatly appreciate it. So guys, uh, we've got a big episode tonight. This is the biggest one I've had in terms of numbers. Uh, I was afraid that StreamYard capped me at three people. So I'm glad that that myth has been busted. Um, And I'm so happy to have you all here. So how are you gentlemen doing this evening? Doing well. Thanks for having us. Doing great. Thank you. Excellent. Yeah. So, so, guys, um, what I want to do, first of all, um, before we get into the topic tonight, just want each of you give a brief introduction and specifically sort of zero in on your either involvement with your connection to the SSPX or radical traditionalism, just to give people a bit of a background on who you are and where you come from in case my viewers aren't familiar. Sure. Yeah, Dom, you want to lead the way? Sure, I'll go ahead. Um, my name is Dom, and I'm the host of The Logos Project, which is a YouTube channel. We're also on all podcasting platforms. And uh, when it comes to my um, involvement with uh, um, the Society of St. Pius X, I was born in the Society, grew up there, uh, transitioned uh, uh, back into the church uh, officially at the age of 14. I think if I remember correctly, it was a gradual process. And uh, we transitioned to the Fraternity of St. Peter. Um, and so, um, yeah, just the, the traditional movement has been something I've been thinking about and trying to understand more, uh, understand the, everything that goes into it, the council, the, the, the forms of the, ma- of the, the mass and all those questions. Uh, but the society especially um, has been trouble, uh, something that is troublesome, it seems to me, because that's like the one option that shouldn't be on the table. And so that's one I think is important to talk about. So, yeah, so mm-hmm. background is just me growing up in the in the movement and um um i'll leave it at that yeah all right uh john or andrew who wants to go next sure i'll i'll <clears throat> i'll go next uh so uh my name is andrew bartell as you've already covered and uh my involvement with the uh the movement was uh, my parents uh shortly after converting to catholicism uh found themselves in the traditional catholic movement beginning with adult and uh, FSSP uh, parishes, but eventually uh, they transitioned um, into uh, the more hardline um, uh, elements of the movement, uh, such as Sadificantism and uh, SSPX. But it was primarily the SSPX that my father chose, and my mother held Sadificantism privately, um, mm-hmm. as did many of the initial SSPX priests before they were um, before they were kicked out in the 1980s. And uh, so my um, my whole upbringing, uh, I was confirmed by uh, Bishop Filet, my first communion, uh, all of my education. I was uh, educated uh, for a brief time with the Dominicans of Avrier, uh in France, where um, uh, before they uh, they broke with the SSPX in 2012. But uh, it was shortly after I came back from going to school with them that um, that the the 2000s. 12 split happened and Bishop Williamson was expelled 
and uh, dozens of priests uh, left. It was the largest split in SSPX history. And it was wow. that that uh, prompted me. It was that event that prompted me to start doing um, some soul searching and some digging into my Catholic faith. Uh, mm-hmm. And eventually it led me home to Rome. So um, so I'm very grateful, very grateful to to be a part of, uh, of God's holy church again. So wonderful. Well, thanks for sharing that, Andrew. I appreciate that. It's a wonderful testimony. And uh, Brother John, how about yourself? Sure. I attended the Society Chapel for 15 years. Uh, I began uh, in apologetics, actually, around 1999. I launched a website called scripturecatholic.com and began writing books and uh, really embraced the traditional movement and still consider myself a traditional Catholic insofar as I love the the traditional mass. But Mm. as I I grew more in terms of my knowledge of the faith, and in particular, after writing the book, True or False Pope, and really doing a deep dive into ecclesiology, the divine constitution of the church, jurisdiction, mission, etc., I discovered that uh, there were some grave errors in terms of the society's position. Initially, it was only focused on the beauty of the mass. And, you know, the the very kind priests, many of them are within the society. I, I grew close to a number of them. I probably am responsible for some of their vocations. Hmm. Uh, I got to know Bishop Flay very well. You know, they've been, they, they were one of the chief endorsers of, of our book, True or False Pope. I, I spoke at their seminaries. I spoke at their conferences. I spoke at their chapels. Mm. Um, but after we released True or False Pope and began working on that second edition, that's when I realized that some of the things I was discovering uh, that um, were opposed to Sadivacantism were equally opposed to the society. It's the same ecclesiology. It's the same theological and canonical uh, situation practically between all independents who are not juridically united to the church. And and so as a matter of conscience, I felt like I had to speak out on that, not for the purpose of destroying the society, but for the purpose of putting a spotlight on these errors, errors which I consider have been embraced by the extreme side of the traditional movement. And I grew uh, in great concern because I, I saw these errors actually leading people out of the church. They ultimately lead people almost into a, a hatred for the church and, and the mm-hmm. Holy Father. When somebody enters the society a year later, you, you've experienced this, guys. That, that person changes often. And this is exactly what you know the Magisterium has warned about, that the risk is imbibing the schismatic mentality that is fostered in their bubble. They truly are in their bubble. They're not part of the Roman Catholic Church. They refuse communion with practically the entire Roman rite, and they operate in this bubble. This is why they've been insulated for so long. Mm -hmm. Um, There's been this veneer of orthodoxy because they wore cassocks and say the traditional mass. But you know, my goal and the goal of others like Dom and Andrew are to drill down beyond the appearances and let's get into the doctrine. Let's yeah. get into the theological and canonical issues that relate to the society and all those who are separated from Holy Mother Church. That That's the key issue. Amen. Well said, brother. Yeah, you know what? I was just telling uh, uh, Dom and Andrew before you, you got on there, John. Um, you know, my um, view of the SSPX was very, um, how would you say, was very neutral in terms of, uh, I didn't see anything innocuous. You know, it was just, okay, well, people want their traditional Latin mass, which is what they offer. You can fulfill your Sunday obligation, according to some. 
Uh, some even say Rome allows for it. Um, I disagree, but that's that's another issue. Yeah, we'll talk about that. Um, and yeah, you know, you, you just want a place where you can celebrate the, the traditional mass. And, uh, yeah. you know, they mentioned the Pope's name in the liturgy. So, right. it, you know, it's a valid option. Other than that, I didn't really know anything in depth until I stumbled upon uh, your guys' work. Um, and the most recent uh, video I saw was was you, John. It was, I forget, the, it was a blue background, a blue brick background. You gave a talk. It was Pioneer Catholic, I think. Yes, that was at St. Augustine University Parish for Father John De, uh, John Del Priori, who's a, a good friend of mine. Uh, he says the traditional mass there. He serves the University of Platteville, and uh, he's got a wonderful apostolate, you know, in communion with his bishop. And he noticed that even within his parish, and if you watch the whole video, a lot of the opposition that occurred against me that night were people from the parish who attended his mass, but really don't recognize the distinction between a mass offered in union with the bishop and an independent mass offered in opposition to the bishop, right? So um, yeah. he wanted me to kind of set the record straight for them. Yeah, the the questioner did try to put you on the hot seat, and I was very impressed with how you handled the questions. Um, I didn't know so, what was coming at me. I didn't know what was coming. But yeah, no, you, you handled it like a pro. Uh, thanks be to God. So, yeah, uh, guys, I, what I wanted to do is just kind of set the stage first. So for those who aren't familiar, what is the SSPX? What is its genesis? How did it start? Uh, tell, tell us a bit about its founder, Marcel Lefebvre. Just give us a quick kind of backstory, and then we'll get into some of the doctrinal issues. You guys take it away. Go ahead, Andrew. <laughs> oh, okay. All right, my turn. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> All right. Well, um, I mean, I think uh, for anyone who really wants a in-depth history of the society, I mean, you can go and, and, and read kind of a brief history. I think their website has one. Um, I mean, there's multiple places you can go and see it. So I'm just going to give kind of the bird's eye yeah. um, view. But uh, what happened was it began primarily with um, uh, a man. You might say a man was the one who uh, these uh, semin that seminarians began to rally around. And he became uh, known as one of the um, uh, members of the the Chetus Internationalis, I think is what it was called, um, which was a, a, a group, uh, a, a con more, I hate this terminology, but kind of a conservative, the con a conservative group at the council, you might say, mm. um, uh, faction or wing that um, uh, tried to influence a lot of, of what was going on um, there. And he was one of the leaders of that. And so he became well known at the time of the Second Vatican Council for that as being one of those um, bishops who wanted to stick, you know, more to the traditional ways, you know, less, definitely less change um, right. on the less change side of things, as well as being an outspoken uh, critic of many of the, um, the characters that were there, as well as the, uh, some of the things in the documents themselves. Um, so, so because of this reputation, uh, he, uh, eventually, after he, um, after the council was over, and he was in, I think he was first given a small diocese for a brief time uh, before retirement, and then he retired. And it was at that time that uh, seminarians who were struggling to get the formation, the priestly formation that they were looking for, approached him and asked him if he would be interested in leading that uh, and helping them in their formation. So it began, the Society of St. Pius X began as a very good thing. And it began 
with the church's blessing. Um, so the, the, the way priests were formed uh, in both the, um, you know, the traditional rites or the 1962 rites and, and the way seminaries were, um, were run before with discipline and, and rigor and Thomas Aquinas and, and all those good things um, were done. And so they founded this, uh, this pious union uh, that's what it began as uh, in um, uh, it was it was Switzerland. Was it free, uh, where was that in Switzerland? Freeburg, Freeburg, Switzerland. Yep, and uh, and the the bishop yep approved it, and they found a location eventually in um, Icon, Icon, Switzerland. And um, so what happened was, and that was about 1970. I think it was 1970 that it was founded, and. Um, for the first several years, um, first few years, things were just fine. But um, as time went on, as the council was being implemented, and as a lot of the controversies and crises began to erupt, uh, the um, the archbishop began to double down on his stance and to take more and more of a hardline stance on things. And right. uh, eventually, it culminated, and th there were two visitors that were sent. Uh, two apostolic visitors that were sent to the seminary uh, to to see how things were being run, and um, they they ultimately gave a positive report uh, of the the running of the seminary. But the seminarians and the archbishop were so scandalized by these two visitors and the things that they were saying uh, to them that it prompted the archbishop to write his uh, to write his famous 1976 declaration. Uh, in which he identified two Romes, a modernist and neo-Protestant Rome uh, of the conciliar church that he called it, the, the false church of the council and all the clergymen and, um, and bishops and laity who adhere, who, who, who adhered to that church, and then true eternal Rome. Um, and uh, it was at that time that things began to go south and the Pope uh, asked him to renege or to uh, to withdraw that declaration, which he refused to do, um, and uh, which eventually ended up in him becoming suspended. And he was also forbidden to uh, ordain priests because of his refusal um, to stop criticizing uh, and speaking out against the council and against the pope. Uh, but he also refused to do that. And so again, he, it, it, and he, as well as the ordination of bishops, and he was eventually suspended. But he continued to. Um, to continue to operate, continue to run his seminary. And, uh, and this ha went on for several years, all the, the years from 1976 all the way up until 1988, uh, when there was, um, when Cardinal Ratzinger was put in charge of trying to bring the Society of St. Pius X out of this irregular state, the state of where its priests and, and leadership were all suspended, uh, and to keep the archbishop from setting up um, what would in practice be a parallel hierarchy, even though he didn't say he was doing that, um, it, it would en enable the S SSPX to operate independently from Rome. They wouldn't need to, right. to have anything to do. They would be able to have that self-perpetuating um, sacramental and governmental system um, mm -hmm. with that. And unfortunately, uh, even though all the way up until... Um, they actually thought they were going to come to an agreement and the archbishop did actually sign it, but he reneged on his signature uh, the next morning and went on to consecrate uh, four bishops, even though he had been promised uh, that, that, that he would be given a bishop in August. Um, he said, not enough. I think you're just waiting for me to die. You're playing games with me. 
And uh, so he went on and that was what really formalized the break. There was already obviously schismatic actions before that. There was already a rebellion, but this is what really cemented, you might say, the schism. Uh, and unfortunately, um, the SSPX has been, you know, there has been back and forth. There has been talks, especially since 2012. But the society has been operating kind of in this state of irregularity and uh, separation from the church ever since. And Dustin, I think it's important to note, too, that the society, when it was founded officially, as uh, Andrew mentioned, it was a lay association because it was a group of seminarians being formed by a retired archbishop. And it only had a temporary or provisional status called right. experimentum, which was a six-year provisional status, at which time it would have necessarily expired unless the Holy See gave it approval to continue. They wanted to see whether this thing was going to work. And so ab initio, the society never had a right to perpetuate itself beyond six years. The fact that they claim a, a right to exist certainly is, is not the case at all. And as Andrew mentioned, uh, they were suspended a year before their canonical expiration date, actually in 75, uh, by a decree that was approved in forma specifica by the Roman pontiff Paul VI himself. And so to claim that they had some right to exist is, is not true. And moreover, their own statutes say that their entire existence depended upon the local bishop. Bishop Cherier is the one that founded the society as a lay association. And it was dependent completely upon him and his will. He was actually the one that was to ordain the priests for the society, and then they would be incarnated into the diocese, either in Freeborg or beyond, if other bishops wanted to take these newly ordained priests. But never was it the case that the Society of St. Pius X, under the leadership of Archbishop Lefebvre, uh, was, was meant to actually ordain and incarnate these seminarians because it's not a church proper that could possibly receive priests through incarnation. You see, so this was an affiliation of laymen being formed by a retired archbishop that no, had no right to exist beyond six years. And, and now look at it right now. It is a worldwide enterprise that claims to have what it calls extraordinary jurisdiction. And by the way, there's no such thing uh, to, you know, to perpetuate and, and practice the priestly ministry, um, you know, without any accountability whatsoever. It's not not only contrary to the church's divine and canon law, but it's contrary to the society's own statutes. So that's interesting. A couple points, you know, between what you and Andrew had said that really stuck out to me. Number one, that it had a shelf life, which I, you know, probably many people aren't aware of. And so it was, it was disbanded a year before that expiration date. Uh, number two, you know, this idea that there's an eternal Rome and then the heretical Rome on the ground, that it's funny that that is now revived in the person of Archbishop Vigano. He's parroting. He's like the new Lefebvre. He's parroting that exact same Two, trope yeah. and rhetoric. Yeah. 2.0. Lefebvre yeah, 2.0 on steroids. Yeah. 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 Um, so I find that interesting and just how timely this is. Um, I also so, think that. Uh, oh, go ahead, Don. Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but a lot of this is. Um, I think a confusion that was happening where uh, tradition was being understood as merely, right, only what the magisterium taught, uh, especially within the last century, right, uh, of the of the council, uh, before the council. And so when the magisterium in its text, in the council, in the text uh, itself, opens itself to the larger tradition and no longer identifies it, identifies that tradition merely with 
the kind of uh, the, the Roman holy office, uh, the way it works and everything like that. Then suddenly you have it seems like the 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 magisterium and tradition are no longer united because it's mm-hmm. not you know because it, it can't contradict itself. So they're they're faced with the kind of cognitive dissonance here, where because of the opening up to the larger tradition, the patristics, the East, and all these different things, um, then suddenly you there's no longer an equation with uh, what Rome taught as tradition, but something much bigger, and that kind of scared them, and they overreacted. Mm-hmm. And then they they now think that uh, the magisterium is no longer holding on to tradition. So it goes from the magisterium is tradition to now it's no longer holding on to tradition. And so the 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 point here is that the rules of faith are off kilter, and it's mm-hmm. actually the Second Vatican Council that restores the proper emphasis. It doesn't mean that the magisterium isn't uh, a vehicle of tradition and safeguarding tradition, but it's not only the magisterium, it's also the fathers, the doctors, the East, the West, and everything. So I just wanted to add that to kind of contextualize this reaction that's happening. And it's somewhat understandable sociologically, but sure. it's not doctrinal, it's not orthodox. So yeah, anyway, yeah. that's right. And and for anyone who wants to see whether or not this separate, this artificial separation between eternal Roman and temporal Rome, you know, or what he refers to as Protestant neo-modernist Rome, which he calls it that. But of course, what he's referring to is he's referring to the Pope. He's referring to all those who who follow the Pope um, in their acceptance of the Second Vatican Council and the reforms that followed. But if you want to see whether Vigano or before him, Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre, are actually being faithful and ironically, whether or not they're even being traditional in this, you can go and read um, Pope Leo XIII's encyclical on the unity of the church, Satis Cognitum. Um, and it, he clearly lays out this error that has been made far before um, the these recent schisms um, by the Protestants and by other uh, heretical movements, which set, uh, creates two categories, like a visible church and an invisible church, right. a church of the structures and the churches and the hierarchy and the magisterium and a church of those who have a category uh, other than that. So like those who would hold fast to what they believe is tradition or those who um, ide- who attend exclusively the traditional Latin mass. Mm. It's funny. That's kind of a, you know, for as much as they would decry this, it sounds, and not to subjectively judge anyone, but it sounds objectively like it's a Protestant type ecclesiology where the true church is identified with those who proclaim, quote unquote, the true faith and the structure on the ground may be corrupt and something else entirely. That's kind of what it smacks. Yeah, up. I mean, that's, it's exactly what it is. But but uh, at the same time, how to put this, like if you look at the Protestant Reformation, it's not like some people decided to uh, teach something contrary to the magisterium and to uh, teach heresy all of a sudden. It's usually people reacting to real pastoral problems, real abuses. Yeah. And then going off and overreacting. Uh, and, and it's when you yeah. lose communion that even if you have good points, it's almost completely irrelevant because you've lost communion. Yeah, you've gone too and, far. Yeah, so so they do have good points. They have been, you know, they've had a tough time. But again, the same thing with the Protestant reformers. Um, and so uh, what we're saying is come back, right? Let's 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 patch up the wounds, right? Right. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so, guys... You know, when asked if the SSPX is in schism, many people who are have a soft spot or are in the society themselves would say, you know, we're not in schism. We're just in canonically irregular status. 
um, we're not schismatic. We mentioned the Pope in the liturgy. Uh, we're sons of the church, this and that. Um, how can we tell objectively whether or not the SSPX is a schism? Well, one of the requirements for schism, according to all the doctors, especially read Reverend Zoll, is a schismatic must recognize that the Pope is the supreme pastor of the church. And so when those say, well, the, you know, the society doesn't, you know, they don't reject the Pope's authority in principle, that's a requirement to be a schismatic. You know, that's a problem. I think, Dustin, there's a, there's a distinction between calling the SSPX schismatic and then the individuals who formally adhere to the movement. There's a distinction there. Mm. John Paul II referred to the schism of Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre and the fact that he performed a schismatic act. Um, so he's referring to the act that resulted in the illicit consecrations and everything that flowed therefrom. And then he made a distinction. Those who formally adhere to that movement also incur the automatic excommunication, the center under the, the century under 1364. Now, when we talk about the society as an entity being in schism, technically and canonically, only persons are schismatics. Only persons can be subject to excommunication. Right. So when we say the society is schismatic, we're using that terminology kind of colloquially, I would say, and not technically canonically. Exactly. However, Cardinal Burke uses it that way. You know, uh, Cardinal Mueller uses it that way. The popes have by referring to the movement as schismatic without identifying persons. So mm -hmm. we're not wrong to say the society as an entity is in schism because that entity by virtue of the decisions of its leadership has willfully chosen to remain separate from the governance of the Roman Catholic Church. Okay. For example, so the Eastern Orthodox. Yeah. That, 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 so that's, that's a point to make. Um, secondly, with respect to those who formally adhere. Now, I'm saying no more, but no less than John Paul II. When John Paul II declared those who formally adhere to the schism, uh, are automatically excommunicated. Well, how do we know that? Well, we really don't. Um, but I would say this, both the Pontifical Council for Ecclesia Dei and the Pontifical Council for the Interpretation of Legislative Texts has addressed the issue of formal adherence. It would be nice if the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith would actually define what it means. Mm -hmm. But what uh, the peace silt said is that, and to quote from memory, it said, uh, having established that this movement is schismatic, they said it seems no doubt that the priests, uh, that the clergy are formally adhering to the movement by their external actions and the fact that they know what the movement is. Right. Uh, and then they went on to say it's a little bit different for the lady. And, and I think all three of us would say those who merely attend the society masses are not schismatics. They're not excommunicated. Right. Uh, that's also what the peace silt said, and it's also what uh, Ecclesia Day has said. But what it said also is that uh, to the extent that the laity formally adhere, and what, what they mean by that is to the extent that they only attend the society, what they call the Febrian Ecclesial Acts in that 96 peace silt statement, and where they truly place the decisions of Archbishop Lefebvre above the authority of the Pope, that's right. where there would be formal adherence on the part of the lady. So it's likely that we could never have juridical certainty as to who would be subject to the censure because there is a subjective element to this. 
It's fair to say, though, and to, to give the warning to the faithful, those who formally adhere to the schism are excommunicated automatically under the law of the church. And, you know, again, I'm saying no more than what the popes and what the organs of the magisterium have said on the matter. None of us have identified anybody by name. Right. I think the bishops are technically, and this is only my opinion, guys, but I think the bishops are technically in a different category than, than the priests because they are the, witning, the, the living witnesses of the schismatic act. They're the ones who usurped a right of the Roman primacy by receiving Episcopal consecration against the will of the Holy Father. So I think the case for schism, you know, without rendering, you know, I, I can't make a judgment, but sure, my sure. own opinion would be, it would be fair to say the bishops are, but again, we have to nuance it. And, you know, it's a different case for the priests and an even a more different case for the faithful. But there's a danger, okay? Even if we don't have juridical certainty, there is a danger of schism. And who would want the risk of being excommunicated under the church's law for formal adherence? It's, it's uh, yeah, and difficult. and people want to people want to overcomplicate it really, like because you know it involves certain complexities um, of of canon law and moral theology and things such as that. As though um, just because there is complexity, you can't also have it. it have a simple, a simple aspect to it, you might say. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think, I think it's pretty uh, fair to say that formal adherence would be if you actually um, make the ends of that movement by which those men were excommunicated and declared to be in schism, your own. So if you only attend SSPX and only believe that they're the, the true priests, if you reject mm. the, second, the authority of the Second Vatican Council, if you reject the authority of the popes, uh, if you believe that the reforms that followed were evil or even sinful or heretical, you know, mm -hmm. all of these things that that were actually clearly laid out in Ecclesia Dei uh, Afflicta by Pope John Paul II and elsewhere. Uh, if you if, if you um, if you buy into that and you believe that. I mean that there you go. You're you you have made you have a now have a formal connection to them in a way that somebody who goes along and you know say is attending their masses but doesn't necessarily buy into the ends of the movement and support okay. it and give their money to that and things like that. Right. So right, I mean yeah. it's just like it's just the same way that you would, you know, totally buy into like a I don't know, a sports team or uh, you put your investments into a business or, you know, I mean, we, we have these actions that we have, that we are responsible for and they have consequences. I mean, you really can bring it down to like the simple basic family level um, when it comes to schism, right? You, you leave the dinner table and you refuse to come to the dinner table uh, ever because you think that the people there are evil or pernicious or they're out to get you and you won't have anything to do with them. That's basically what schism is. And these other things that we talk about, such as, you know, loss of jurisdiction um, and the ecclesial nature of communion and everything, those are just the church, you know, the church speak, the churchy way of talking about something that happens on a basic familial level because the church is a family. It's a worldwide family. Yeah. Um, so we don't have to overcomplicate it. That's one of the reasons I emphasize the the basic moral, you know, moral level of schism, that it has to do with human actions, human responsibility, uh, who we are and who we believe, what we believe our identity is. Um, mm -hmm. Those are simple. Those are things that your average layman uh, can understand. Um, everything else that, you know, like John it, uh, talks about that he really gets into that's so good 
Um, those are, you might say, the signs of the inner truth, the inner truth, which is that we belong to this covenant family. You know, that's what this is all about. This is all about God and being incorporated into his family and, and remaining at the table, the supper of the Lamb. And, and Dustin, it's also important to point out that schism is not only refusal of submission to the Roman pontiff, but also rejecting communion with those subject to him. We forget about that second canonical element, which suffices for schism. Okay, if you want to debate to what extent the society has really withdrawn communion from the Holy Father, that's one debate. But here's something that's probably uh, even easier to, to discern. It's a fact that the society priests refuse communion with 99.9% of the Roman Rite, of the of people in the Roman Rite, because they attend the Novus Ordo Mass. Right. And in fact, they even advise uh, rather consistently, and I'm not accusing every priest in the society of this, but pretty consistently, to, to be leery of going to Ecclesia Day, former Ecclesia Day institutes like the Institute or the, or the, or the fraternity. So there clearly is a posture of refusing communion with those that are subject to the Roman pontiff, irrespective of their own juridical irregularities and separation from the church. They externally refuse communion with what they call the Novus Ordo Church. That is a clear sign, perhaps even a clearer sign of schism that's not emphasized enough. Okay. And how many how many Catholics do you know that only attend society chapels and would never go into a Novus Ordo church, much less go to the mass? Certainly, if there's a traditional mass there, they want to make sure that those hosts weren't consecrated by uh, the Institute of Christ the King or even a Novus Ordo mass. You see, so there clearly is this refusal of communion, which, as Andrew pointed out, is definitely a most clear external sign of schism. Yeah, that second part, John, I think is key, uh, and I think it's easy to forget too. You know, refusal to the uh, uh, refusal to submit to the Roman Pontiff and the bishops in communion with him. That that part needs to be emphasized more because it's easily shown, as you said. Um, so, but, oh, go ahead, Don. Sorry, Dustin. I just want to say, I mean, but this really it teaches us a beautiful lesson, which is the what is the Eucharist, right? It's the body of Christ. There's a deep connection between the Eucharist and the Church. And when you rent the church with schism, right, then the mass said not in communion contradicts the very Eucharist present at that mass. Yeah. So it's a contradictory mass that is being done not for the purpose of bringing everybody into communion through the sacrifice of Christ. Really, so it teaches you the horrors of schism and, and its effects in people, but it also teaches you uh, the beauty of the Eucharist and why schism is such a danger. It's something that should sadden us because the church, you know, she is a family, as Andrew beautifully pointed out. But even more than that, she's the whole Christ. She's the very flesh of the yeah. bridegroom. And when you sever that flesh, you know, there's a kind of a, a spiritual death that, that is it can take place. And that's very dangerous. And so that's why, you know, what unites the flesh of the bride and the bridegroom is charity that, you know, it's the love of the spouses. Well, when you sever that, you know, then you 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 start to dry up. You're not connected to the vine. The sap isn't isn't there anymore, and that's very dangerous. So I just wanted to add that. Yeah, well said, Dom. That's great, Dom. Yeah, um, guys. One of the things that troubled me that I learned fairly recently was that Marcel Lefebvre, and I think this is in his letter to confused Catholics. Correct me if I'm wrong, but he said the Novus Ordo, as celebrated according to the norms and rubrics of Sacrosanctum Concilium 
there that mass is inherently evil and a danger to souls and a danger to souls theologically speaking is you could be led to perdition um so it's not just it's it, it you know going to the novus ordo will leave a bad taste in your mouth or you'll get angry because you know certain things are done or not done we're talking about actually objective evil uh is that is that accurate does the society still hold to that officially he even publicly and it's on youtube called the new sacraments the the new uh the reform sacraments they're not different sacraments he called them bastard sacraments you can mm. find this on on youtube yeah yeah sorry but what do you guys think because he believed yeah and he said that because he believed they were the product of a false union with a false church he believed they were the uh, illegitimate offspring of and this so this all goes back to this first faux pas that um Archbishop Lefebvre made in 1976 by artificially separating and saying, okay, now there's, there's a true church and a false church. And the false church is the visible church that we see, right? Mm -hmm. With the Pope and the bishops and the magisterium and everybody who adheres to the council, that's the false church. And now the true church is those of us who actually preserve the tradition. Uh, so all the way back. So now his, you have this rejection all the way to this day of his priests um, of these sacraments as being illegitimate completely illegitimate and something that, uh, like you said, Dustin, uh, will actually uh, can can become mortally sinful and make you uh, a Protestant, basically. Wow. Yeah, like you look at, you know, one of the churches that does mass really well is St. John Canius in Chicago. And I always think when I when I see those masses, I think to myself, the SSPX actually holds that attending in and or participating in this beautiful mass could harm your soul. It just it blows my mind. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask too, and uh, anybody could take this, but John, I've heard you speak on this quite a bit, is the SSPX um, priests and uh, bishops don't have mission from the church. So they're not really operating canonically. Can you speak more about that? What does that mean that they don't have mission from the church? Sure. So starting with the bishops, um, when a bishop receives Episcopal consecration, he receives an ontological participation in the sacred functions of the episcopacy, but he's not allowed to exercise them until he's in hierarchical communion with the Holy Father, which generally means he will be given a mission by the Pope to rule over a diocese. Perhaps he's an auxiliary or he's underneath another bishop with ordinary jurisdiction. But a canonical mission is what makes the powers received that episcopal consecration ready to act licitly and in union with Peter because everything depends upon Peter. And, and so because the society bishops, although they have received valid Episcopal consecrations, they have not been given a canonical mission and hence they're not allowed to exercise uh, the Episcopal ministry. It's the same for the priests, although the terminology is a little bit different. When a priest is ordained by a bishop, he similarly receives, you know, the indelible priestly character on his soul and has powers that he, that he can use to exercise the priesthood. But he has absolutely no right to, to do anything until uh, he is under the authority of a bishop. It's called incarnation under Canon 265. Um, incarnation is required, which basically means he's tied to or hinged to a bishop. In other words, you know, Christ gives a mission to the pope. The pope then... Uh, delegates mission to the bishop and the priests are co-missionaries of the bishop. They're participating in his mission. Priests don't have missions on their own. They're always united to a bishop. And so upon incarnation, 
the priest is given the, uh, uh, many of the faculties universally by operation of law, for example, to say mass. Uh, there are additional faculties that would be required and given to him, for example, to hear confessions. But it's the same thing, Dustin. He has to be authorized. He has to be sent. Uh, the validity of his ordination is insufficient. He has to actually be authorized to exercise the offices, the interior ontological powers that he received at ordination in order to be a legitimate Catholic minister. If he is not properly sent by church authority, he is not a Catholic minister. Wow, that's pretty. Uh, that's pretty cut and dried there. Yeah, uh, and and the reason for this too is so important because we think, well, why mission? Right. Why? Why is it? Why is it necessary? And the thing that we really uh, emphasize too is that mission is a part of divine law, mm. because so often one of the things that pro SSPX apologists try to um, used to defend is that, well, we have a higher law we have to, to uh, adhere to. We have to be faithful to the truth. We have to be faithful to tradition. And if that means we have to disobey these ecclesiastical laws, then so be it. Right. But when it comes to mission, uh, which is closely connected to schism and the unity of the church, you know, it's, it's really at the heartbeat of the church is because it has to do with the nature of the church, which flows from the nature of God. Because God himself is a procession. It's ascending, a mission. So right. you have the Son proceeding from the Father and the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. And then from them, the church proceeds, right? So the Holy Spirit comes and he gives life and fire and love to the church and gives her the authority uh, to speak in his name. And so it's a part of the divine nature. It's a part of the divine procession. You have to have this. That's why St. Paul says, how shall a man preach unless he be sent? Um, and, and this comes from a very famous doctor of the church, the doctor of charity, the doctor of love, um, St. Francis de Sales. Uh, and it was really my introduction uh, of this, of his book, his apologetic tracts, which can be found in the Catholic controversy, that eventually led me uh, back into the church because I realized that there's only one place on earth where this mission, this divine mission can be found as a continuation from the mission uh, of the Jews and then Christ and then him sending forth his church. It can only be found in the Catholic church and everyone else is an imposter and that we as a faithful have a right to know by whom these ministers have been sent. So whether it's Vigano or Archbishop Lefebvre or SSPX or this or that state of a contest or independent priest, or unfortunately now we have a coalition of canceled priests and I'm not saying all of them, but mm -hmm. I, I think some of them are operating in a state of suspension and outside and, you know, in a state of rebellion. Uh, these men have no mission and therefore they should, they, we should not welcome them into our, our homes. We should not allow them to preach. We should not allow them to administer the sacraments as the lay faithful, because this has to do with the heart of God, the heart of the church uh, itself. Right. Um, and also uh, these observations on uh, on what the nature of the church and the fact that uh, mission is crucial and how that relates to schism and how that relates to preaching. It all gets tied together in the liturgy, in the Eucharist, because the Eucharist, as it were, knits together the very body of the church and sends it out at the end. Ite misa est. Go forth, you are sent, right, to bring about that communion in the world and not to bring about division, 
right? And, and schism, right. or else we can't be recapitulated, you know, uh, uh, through the salvific work of Jesus Christ. So it's, it's all tied to, uh, with the Mass and with the ability to say the Mass and to bring people into communion. You have to have mission. If you don't, you're, con again, contradicting the Mass. And the words, Ite Misa Es, don't make sense anymore, which is also why there is a kind of insular non-reaching out attitude that is also present and anyone will say this i mean uh this is not something i'm pulling out of my hat right uh, there isn't the kind of outreach uh, uh in, in the society saint Pius the 10th it's it's a that's operation survival yeah it's operation survival but but guess who is reaching out to them the roman catholic church right yeah extending all of branches i mean but the holy father you know for all the flack the holy father gets he's been the most merciful to the sspx yeah um you know since all the pontiffs in recent years yeah. um so yeah, i'm going to mention too dustin if you don't mind when, when yeah, Andrew sure. says mission is a matter of divine law originating from the father himself who sends the son and, and so forth this is the reason why the church throughout history and the popes throughout history have taught that if one claims to have a mission but was not sent by earthly lawful authority he has to have miracles because that's the divine testimony, because mission is of the divine law, you see? Mm -hmm. So, um, and St. Francis de Sales taught clearly this, a number of popes have written extensively about this. The church says, if you actually claim to have mission, but you weren't sent by lawful authority, prove it through miracles. Right, okay. To my knowledge, the society doesn't have any miracles. And by the way, all the popes who've taught about mission, including St. Francis de Sales, say that the mission is always consistent with the ordinary mission of the church, never in opposition to the mission of the church. That's so number right. one, the miracles have to be canonically approved by ecclesiastical authority, mm. and the mission, which is has the divine testimony of the miracles, is, is the same as the mission of the church, because there's only one mission. There aren't right. competing missions, you see. Right. That and underscores you know, yeah. the fact that mission is a matter of divine law. Yeah. You know, guys, one of the quotes that strikes me right now and I've thought about this before. St. Augustine, I forget which letter it was, but he said something like, paraphrasing, um, when looking for the Catholic Church, nobody will, a heretic actually, he says a heretic will point to a, his private house or private chapel, but everybody knows where the Catholic Church is. Yeah. Right? You don't have to point. That's like, if you're evangelizing somebody, can you imagine... You know, we have this this wonderful deposit of faith, and it's been kept for 2,000 years, but you can only find it like a needle in a haystack. It's almost like, you know, after an altar call, and when the minister says, you know, now go find a good Bible-believing church, and you have all these different choices, and it's like, where do you go? Yeah, Same Dustin, thing, right? this is such a great point you make, because this is exactly St. Irenaeus's point. And, and, this is, and this is why St. Irenaeus is known both to uh, speak at length about apostolic succession and to, to fight against Gnosticism, which is a secret knowledge apart from the visibility of the church, right? And so for me, a huge part of this for me was reading St. Irenaeus and realizing, oh, no, 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 <laughs> I, sure. this is not consistent. And so, you know, and, and, and this, this talk about mission, is, we, did just, we didn't just pull it out from only St. Francis de Sales. It's in the Fathers, the Scholastics, and the Moderns. Ratzinger speaks about it at length in his little book called The Communion. You know, St. Irenaeus uh, talks about it. Uh, uh, St. Bonaventure talks about it, you know. And it, this is not just one little gotcha card that we pulled out of our hat or something. This right. is what makes sense of, of, of the constant teaching of the church. And as John said, and I think this is really brilliant, which some, we need to really hammer this point home, is extraordinary mission can never contradict ordinary mission. 
Is it contradicting? Is the society contradicting the ordinary mission of the current visible church? Yes, that, that's a done deal for me. Saint Aaron and they actually admitted, um, if you've watched the uh, crisis series of podcasts, priest after priest, I remember, I think it was Father Jonathan Loop said, yes, we are operating uh, contrary to, you know, paraphrasing him, contrary to the will of the princes of the church, the successors, wow. the apostles. This is exactly what Father Luke said. That's their yeah. position. They acknowledge that they are carrying out a so-called mission contrary to the mission of yeah. our Lord Jesus Christ through his Roman Catholic Church. Yeah, all, all form of, sorry, uh, last phrase, all form of Protestantism is a kind of Gnosticism because it yeah. divorces the visible and the invisible. Uh, sorry, Dustin. Right, no, exactly. <laughs> it, you know, the church, is, the church is the extension of our Lord in the world, right? Body and soul are united. So, uh, yeah, that's an excellent point, Tom. Um, now I think I lost my uh, my train of thought. I um, Oh, I, I remember. Okay, so somebody will say, you know, that's all well and good. But Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre and the society by extension, they do what they do because of the crisis in the church. The, ergo, uh, ergo, there is a state of emergency. Therefore, they can do what they do validly and legitimately. And if it, it's my understanding that only the church can declare whether the church is in a state of emergency. That's not up to an individual's private judgment. Well, that's precisely what the typical counsel for the uh, interpretation of legislative text said when it confirmed that Archbishop Lefebvre's consecrations were a schismatic act, it rightly said there is never a necessity that would justify consecrating bishops contrary to the will of the Holy Father. And that's Dustin because <clears throat> the right to choose and select and consecrate and send bishops belongs to the Pope alone. Of course, he delegates the authority to consecrate to other bishops. But he, by divine right, alone chooses and sends his bishops. And hence, there could never be a necessity to justify that act which perpetuates apostolic succession and goes to the very divine constitution of the church, perpetuating her existence until the second coming. There can never be a necessity to justify a direct attack on the unity of the church and to justify a schismatic act, you see, so it doesn't make sense. Because we're dealing with the divine law, and because divine law foresees all things, it also foresees cases of necessity. The church's mission, the way Christ structured it, handles all cases of a necessity already. We don't need, as St. Francis de Sales said, extraordinary legates to come around and claim that they need to save the church. It's that, you know, every schismatic has said that throughout history, but the popes have, have said that's not the case. Christ founded his church to handle all of these issues that will rock the boat, so to speak, until until he comes again. Yeah, and hence, you know, hence the need for and the reason for ecumenical councils. I mean, throughout history, we didn't have just you know private individuals saying Arianism or um, you know whatever was heresy, but they the church proclaimed it. The church was equipped to deal yeah. with problems and make declarations. The church as a whole, it wasn't just a few individuals saying no. We need to. We need to set up a parallel structure and determine this, that, and the third. The church as a whole declared, you know, this is going too far. And the church has that ability to deal with those emergencies and the authority to stamp them out. Archbishop Lefebvre didn't claim anything new. Satan has been using this playbook since the apostolic time. And we see this with the, uh, you know, the Arians and the Nestorians and the Donatists of St. Augustine's time through the Fratricelli 
you know, all the way through the old Catholics, you know, in the late 1800s, they claimed a state of necessity. Um, and what did Pius IX say? Well, we've got it covered. You know, the Christ's church is going to prevail. But all schismatics say that. You know, the old Catholics left the church after Vatican I. The society left the church after Vatican II. We see the same thing with the St. Evacontists, with the resistance. Everyone who has broke communion with the church has claimed they were doing it to save the church. Yeah. Again, it's the same playbook. So what Lefebvre did is what, you know, his, all of his fathers and schism did before him. And this is a constant theme throughout history. After councils are always a turbulent time, and there's all, almost always schism. Like the Chaldeans, yeah. like you said, the Donatists, you name it, you know, the old Catholics, now the SSPX. It's, 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 a, it's a pattern, you know, because there's a sense in which um, division, right, is the master play here. And But what was the council, actually, the Second Vatican Council, looking for? Communion, right? The, 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 the one thread that runs through all of those texts is communion. John Paul II himself said the hermeneutic of the Second Vatican Council is communion. Mm. So a lot of these inter interpretations of rupture that create reactions that equally adhere to a rupturous interpretation, all of this is is the the work of what Paul called the the powers and principalities trying to prevent what you know Christ is bringing about in His Church, which is communion. Yeah. So yeah. that's right. And 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 not only that, but because, of course, after crises, right, there are problems to be solved. There are problems in the church. And sure. often there are overreactions, there are abuses, there are things that need to happen. Uh, but when it comes to separating, right, separation, division, schism, as St. Augustine said, there is never a justification for schism. Schism mm -hmm. is never justified ever. Because why? What does this all boil down to? The, um, the the means are not justified by the ends right and schism and separation and breaking unity the unity of the church is is never a solution it is never a solution and I remember um, talking about this with um, Cardinal Raymond Leo Burke and uh, he said something to me that that really stayed has, has stayed with me and that is he said schism is a purely human solution to a real problem mm. said excellent but it's not he said it's but it, but that's it, therein lies the problem is that it is merely human it mm -hmm. is not a supernatural response we are required as catholics to trust in god's will to trust in the church to know that he's going to be there to be he's going to be faithful that christ will be faithful to his promises and that we work within the family we work within the church and not separate and start a new thing wherein you know we can we we're broken off away and then all of a sudden now we have all kinds of issues that you're dealing with because you're broken away from the life-giving source of the body yeah amen brother um one thing i did want to mention um i think we should be consistent and this is why a good grasp and knowledge, knowledge of church history is so important so you know the the pushback we get well, Vatican II, it's been 50 years. It's not impl implemented yet. What's going on? It must be failed. Well, if we hold every single ecumenical council up to the same standard, did Nicaea immediately squash out Arianism and semi-Arianism? No, it persisted not for 20, not for 30, not for 40, 50 years. It persisted for hundreds of years. Good points. So, I mean, by that, by that standard, if we're using that yardstick, every single ecumenical council, not just Vatican II, but every, the, the first seven are all failures. If we're to be consistent, we have to admit that. Yeah, that's right. It's a great point. And also, like, uh, 
I think what's uh, what I find interesting is that some of the councils of the past, even like the first, uh, the very earlier ones, are still fruitful today. And there's things that we can draw from them today. Uh, for example, um, uh, you know, uh, Chalcedon is actually still debated in certain circles today. Uh, and uh, and but those debates yield a lot of fruitful um, work in theology. So, uh, you know, a council is one of those kind of stamps in church history that is something we can constantly come back to. Uh, we can uh, see what it yields. We can be constructively critical. But the issue here is critic the critical spirit is not the same thing as being constructively critical. Some people have some criticism about Chalcedon, and yet it really solidifies the defining factor for orthodoxy, which is Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. And mm. so, you know, this is just people have this kind of black and white view of history. And I don't like this council. It must be a departure. from It's just not that simple. And yeah, it's uh, very new. A little bit right? more. Yeah, a little bit more faith and, and yeah. trust. That, I just want to give a shout out to uh, a few people who are who are watching, who are, support this channel regularly. Uh, hallelujah. Catholics on record. My friend Matthew. Uh, True form motivations. A dear brother of mine for over a decade. Um, St. Charbel, miracle worker, uh, just uh, and Father John Brown SJ. I just want to give them a special uh, mention. My, my brother, True Four Motivations, says, Greetings, Dustin. One way you can tell uh, the other, the other uh, schismatics and heretical groups know the Catholic Church is the true church is because they broke away. They didn't stand and say, We're the true church. You Catholics break from us. The Catholic Church has always stood on the foundation, which is absolutely true. Which is absolutely true. I mean, you know, every schismatic and heretic says the same thing. We are saving the church, but they go above and beyond, you know, the established means and order in order to, quote unquote, save or reform the church. But, you know, the best way that we can reform the church is by reforming ourselves. Yeah, that's the best way we can do it by offering up our sufferings and our sacrifices in union with Christ for the good of the church and the whole world and the entire creation. That's how we can do this. So, uh, guys, what I wanted to ask you because um, uh, we're, we're winding down in a bit here, maybe uh, 15 more minutes or so, because I have to get ready for my next show. And uh, I've appreciated you all so much in your insights. It's been an absolute blessing to me. Thank you again. Um, Thank but you. I, wanted to, uh, I wanted to address this, okay? So many people are critical, and I can understand why. So my view of Traditionis Custodis is kind of balanced, right? On the one hand, I know why the Holy Father issued it. Because many people have used the, it's not the fault of the traditional Latin mass, which is beautiful in and of itself, but a lot of people have used it as a veneer for schism or quasi-schism, uh, either formal or material. And this isn't just a select few. I see this rampant online and I see it in real life. So I can understand why the Holy Father has issued the document and the, and the restrictions. However, I think maybe the restriction is a bit heavy handed maybe a different, more prudential approach could have been. I'm not the Pope. I, I'm just saying we can criticize prudential decisions, right? And I think maybe a, a better way would have been, okay, you want to you want to celebrate the TLM? Sign this profession of faith. You know, pr profess your fidelity to the magisterium in Vatican II, and you can celebrate. No problem. I think that would have been more prudential, less of a carpet bomb, le less heavy-handed, which might not have pushed people away. Um... But what do you say to people who say, look, the traditional Latin mass is less and less accessible. And our only option is if we don't have SSP or the Institute of Christ the King, uh, we don't have any other options. So what are we supposed to do? So before you guys answer, 
uh, one of the, and this solution isn't for everybody, but for me, I almost defected to Eastern Orthodoxy in 2016 over the state of the liturgy and how I perceived abuses and whatnot and how it was being celebrated or not celebrated properly. It made me so angry. But then a friend of mine taught me about redemptive suffering and applying it to the mass. And the way I, the way I participated in the existing Novus Ordo transformed my spiritual life. And I was as edified as I left a Novus Ordo as I did a TLM. And a year prior, that would have been unthinkable. So it's just a grace that's been given to me. But maybe that's not the solution for everybody. So what do you propose somebody does, somebody do if they have a love for the tradi traditional Latin mass, but it's not accessible in their area and they don't know what to do? Do you have any like practical advice for them? You suck it up. <laughs> <laughs> I throw it up, right? I, it's not. It's not. It's for, it's there. It's it's cliche, it's like, but it's like cliche. Italian, it's it's what my football you. coach told me. My old high school football coach told me it's stayed. It stayed with me. Uh, it's, you know, this is this is a, a thing that we we're all facing, and and I think it's likely that we're going to face thing even worse things next year, from what I hear. Um, the rumblings in in Rome. I mean, I would say, Dustin, the first thing is. The mass is a, is a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. And um, this is in no way to depreciate the TLM, which I've been attending for just about 20 years. I mean, I absolutely love it. But it is a means to an end. And if it's taken away, we have to recognize that Christ himself is permitting this for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. I do agree with you, Dustin, and I've even argued the same thing myself. When you read Pope Francis's rationale for his actions in, in Traditione Custodes, he refers actually to the ecclesiology of those who, in his view, attend the TLM. And, and he points out the fact that many of these are fomenting division by claiming that they are part of the, quote, true church. True church. He yes, says right. that twice, I think, That's in his right. letter to the to the, the accompanying letter to, yes. to the bishops. Who is to blame for that? It That's ain't right. the Institute of Christ the King and it ain't the fraternity of St. Peter. It's the Society of St. Pius X. As you said, it's not the, the TLM and the 62 Missal, but those who've weaponized it to further and foment their divisions. Obviously, we're not the Holy Father, but prudentially, I would say the solution would be to condemn the Society of St. Pius X and those who have fomented such division, because mm -hmm. that's an issue that's separate and distinct from the TLM. Don't punish you know, those uh, priestly societies who are in communion with, with the Holy Father. So it seems like the Holy Father has taken a very broad stroke to this, yeah. and it's uh, it's unfortunate. But I can understand the rationale. He's concerned with those who have weaponized the mass and used it to, to foster division. Yeah, but, right. you know, what is the solution? I think we have to do the best with, with, with what we have. I do not think we have a moral obligation to attend a liturgy that is replete with sacrilege. Uh, of course not. I, yeah. I, I, I don't believe that at all. But I think that's an exception, honestly. I really do. I'm aware of a Novus Ordo parish very close to me where the priest chants, he mm -hmm. he says the old canon, the traditional canon, and there's a, a communion kneeler that he stands behind and distributes communion only by himself, no lay ministers, and people kneel and receive communion on the tongue. I mean, this is going on. I think the worst of it was in the 70s and 80s and 90s. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I just, I just had coffee with, with the priest yesterday and asked him his thoughts. He said, John, these 20 and 30-somethings who are being ordained, they're really being attracted to tradition. The tide is changing. God willing, you know, we're going to be able to, to have 
reverent and, and Catholic you know, rites celebrated in, in the new rite. But again, it's in Christ's hands. We have to put all of our trust and faith and hope in him. That's right. And, and that's, that's why what we're saying about the SSPX is so important. That's why we have to recognize that the SSPX is a non-Catholic entity, that it is in schism and that that is not the Catholic way to go because so many people now have said, well, they're just kind of irregular and there's this kind of issue with canonical stuff, but they're actually fully Catholics like the rest of that. Because of that, it's like, well, if if they're Catholic and they can hold that we can reject the Second Vatican Council and hope it ends up in the dustbin of history, or we can say that the the new rite of mass is evil and harmful to your faith and they're and they're Catholics, then we can do it as well. And right. I think that this sickness is spreading all throughout, especially the American church, because the SSPX is very dominant here, yeah. uh, more dominant here than other parts of the world. Right. And because of the, the complicit clergy, com- even complicit bishops who have given the okay and the green light to be a part of the SSPX to attend their masses and said they're fully Catholic and they should actually be imitated and emulated, completely brushing aside any problems that they might have. They're to blame for this this rampant spread of of, of division and, and this and this identification of the true church with those who say the TLM that Pope Francis is talking about, as John mentioned. Isn't it ironic, Andrew, that those who say Lefebvre saved the old mass and it's going to be the society who is is going to destroy the right to have that. That's what's so sad. Again, that's why, because they use the wrong way, the wrong way to try to preserve the mass by using a rebellion, by using a schism. And in doing so, they're going to end up losing the the very thing they're trying to love and cherish. That's ironic, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And going back to what John said, I mean, I've heard from numerous people across the country of exactly that, which is these masses are being said, uh, you know, uh, facing East, uh, you know, with beautiful choirs, uh, incense, they're following the rubrics. Oh my, you know, <laughs> and from so, the council down from the council. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. this is, this is happening. It's, this is good. This is hopeful. Don't ruin it guys. Don't ruin it. Right. And so another thing is about a tradition is custodes. Anyone who's, who looks at, especially uh, more like early modern Catholic history, you know, this happens all the time, heavy handed or even sometimes underhanded. Yeah, like, not, not heavy not heavy enough. Yeah, it happens all the time. Uh, what, what, what you do is, you know, first of all, Pope, you know, I don't see what Pope Francis sees, but he doesn't see what I see and he doesn't see what someone else sees. It's the nature of the primacy. Right. Yeah. And so we just we just got to do what we can to make sure it's a, a mass that's uh, allowed by the bishop and union with the Roman pontiff yeah. and stop stop creating more problems. All right, I'm done. And, you know, uh, <laughs> one of the things I, one of the things I did want to mention, actually, that echoes a, a point that John made in another video which I'm, I'm so glad he brought this up, was that, you know, people think of the Novus Ordo as some kind of, and again, I'm talking about as it's promulgated, right, by the Holy See. But they think of it as this hodgepodge, this Frankenstein, this uh, appeal to hook Protestants or what have you, right? But all of the, if you read Jungmann, for example, Oh, You'll see great. that, right? Yeah. All of the, all of the elements of the Novus Ordo can be seen historically in the Roman Rite. That's awesome. And that book's online. It's a lengthy, lengthy treatise, but you're absolutely right, Dustin. I mean, I, I engaged in my own study because I wanted to see where these elements came from. They're all there. I, I traced a lot of them back to the fifth century. And, mm. and there were all kinds of things going on through the first 500 years, you know, in terms of how the liturgy was celebrated in, in the Roman Rite. 
you know, and and, and remember, Pius Saint Pius V, he suppressed the Gallican Rite, which was around in substance from about a thousand years. Okay, the Theorem Rite too. Yeah, well, I think he did too. Yeah, but I mean, we've lived through already things that don't even you know resemble what might happen with the implications of TC. I mean, Pope Clement IV he suppressed the Jesuit order. After what two hundred years, they were producing saints and doctors, and he outright suppressed them. Nobody accused him of of being right. a heretic or a schismatic. Popes have interdicted entire countries for the sins of their civil leaders, and I'm talking barring Catholics from the sacraments for eight and ten years. This happened in England and in Great Britain. So. You're right. Whoever mentioned church history is important. It is very important. We are living in a historical moment, but if the 62 missile is taken away, the church actually has suffered much worse. In my opinion. Yeah. Yes, and Amen. the the Pope does have authority over the liturgy. I think if you read, I think it's Pius the is it Pius the 12th Mediator Day. Uh, um, yes, yeah. but also Vatican yes. One, uh, Vatican Pastor One. Eternos. Yeah, right. that's the thing, right? It's not just oh, you you we could, we only listen, and I think this is one of the SSPX stances is that. Oh, we only listen to the Pope's infall infallible ex-cathedral pronouncements. That's not what Vatican I teaches. It teaches the Holy Father is to be obeyed in not only his doctrinal pronouncements, but also the discipline and government of the church. I mean, people yeah. forget that part. That's actually a condemned it. proposition. It's a condemned proposition. It's condemned, yeah. Yeah, by Pius the Ninth. I mean, like they errors. talk all the time about the syllabus of errors, and then they fall into the exact same condemned proposition, which yes. is the idea that you only have to follow the extraordinary magisterium of the Pope. I mean, I come on. Who's who, uh, and, you, and you're yeah. saying that you're traditional and that you're right. adhering to the syllabus of errors? It's That's amazing. novel. Yeah, and it's a rejection of the universal profession of faith promulgated by Pope John Paul II in 1989. It is a rejection of the profession of faith, which has always been considered heretical in ages past because the profession is considered to be equivalent to the dogma of the church, the dogma of the faith, which has to be believed with, with Catholic faith. So yeah. uh, you, you yeah. can't make the argument. Something entertaining for you guys. Um, I, I once I uh, I came across this list of abuses of liturgical abuses that they had to deal with at the time of the Council of Trent. So just in case anybody thinks that right, right. Uh, that liturgical abuses are something novel and it's like, <laughs> oh, the only time you have liturgical abuses is when, you know, the Nova Sordo because they loosen the rules and now you have all kinds of liturgical abuses. No, at the Council of Trent, they had to deal with all kinds of like superstitions that were entering into the mass. Some of the yeah. things that the priests would do, like they would do multiple signs of the cross over the Eucharist, like that was what confected the consecration. Some of mm. them would even like put the Eucharist on the head and do like a, a weird <laughs> procession around. Yeah. Um, there were right. lords and ladies and like you talk about like being annoyed at people in the pews there were lords who would bring their hunting dogs and their falcons to mass with them um and one of my favorites was that you would have these um different churches and they would be having eucharistic processions and they would meet on the same street and neither one would want to give way because they're like well we've got the eucharist and so then these brawls would just Wow. break out over in these Eucharistic processions. I mean, they had all kinds of things because humans are messy. It's just yeah. kind of part of being, you know, the human family, everybody who has kids and knows that that this is how it is. And it's the same thing in the Catholic church. So we have to, we have to have a certain amount of patience um, right. with the process and with our, our weak, you know, human beings. And let's, let's have a sense of humor about it too. I mean, we're kind of strange <laughs> in how yeah. we try to do things. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, I mean, again, a grasp of church history, I think, is paramount. 
knowing that the church doesn't move on our time and our whims and wishes. She moves very slow, but she moves methodically under the direction and guidance of the Holy Spirit, ultimately um, vindicating Christ's promise that the gates of hell will not prevail. So the the uh, solution is not to jump the bark of Peter into a life raft during a storm. You stay in the bark. That's how you get. To, that's how you get to the land, the promised land of salvation. And another thing we can do is being solicitous for those who have been hurt by abuses, whatever they may be. Right. And I think that's that's our it. responsibility. Yeah. No. Yeah. So how would you? Um, okay, let's say you got somebody who's in the SSPX, and they're starting to realize, okay, there's some doctrinal problems here, and they're feeling unsettled. What would be the best way? But they're also apprehensive of going to the Novus Ordo and this and that. How would you miss? How would you minister to someone like that? There's this thing on YouTube called the Logos Project. I don't know if you guys have yeah, heard yeah, that. yeah. <laughs> I'm just 20 kidding. hours of twenty hours of our podcast. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. right. <laughs> if they can get through that, they're out of there. Yeah, yeah. You guys are are doing just amazing work, and I'm so grateful and thankful. Uh, number one, that you exist. Number two, that you came on here with me this evening on a Friday night uh, and and had fun with me. And we had a lively chat going on on the side, too. Um, so do, do you have any uh, closing or final thoughts, uh, gentlemen, that you want to share or do you think that are important or pertinent? I think we need to buckle up because I think the worst is yet to come. And I think it's coming next year. Um, and so that's why I think the work that we're all doing, you know, collectively is laying the foundation for hopefully uh, the ability for people to discern what's right and to make the right decisions. Because I think we're going to be facing some difficult decisions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's nothing new in the church. This is, you know, Mike Aquilino once told me, and this was one of the things that really shook me and woke me up, was that there's never been a golden age of the church. There's always been problems. There are problems and there's going to be problems until the Perugia. So we have to, like you said, buckle up, offer it up, suffer, suffer nobly. Don't be effeminate. And I don't mean in the colloquial sense. I mean, effeminate, according to St. Thomas Aquinas, is right. uh, being not willing to suffer. Yeah. Right. We suffer for our bridegroom and we're one with him as the as the head is. So is the body. So if we participate in the death and the crucifixion, we will come to the glory of the resurrection. But we just have to be patient, stand firm, stand our ground, be in union with the living magisterium. And it is a living magisterium, not relegated to a certain group or a certain time period. It is living and active. And we are to be in union with the magisterium, to be obedient, to be docile and trust Christ. We're not Catholic because of the men who hold the offices or because of a certain style of mass. Yeah. We're Catholic because it's Jesus Christ's church that he established and he will keep until the end. And think of the graces and the merits we can win by fighting the battle on the right side, right? And as St. Peter said, in doing that, we confirm our election, God, mm -hmm. God willing. So let's persevere in this, guys. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Andrew and Dom, did you have any uh, final thoughts? Andrew? Sure. Um, anybody who has read what I've written or uh, listened to the things that I've said, know that I really uh, try to emphasize the theme of family. Uh, one of the things uh, the Second Vatican Council tried to rediscover in its teaching on the church in Lumen Gentium was that the church is not a mere political structure. It's not just a pyramid. We have to remember the rich spiritual uh, imagery that you can find in scripture, you know, a flock and a shepherd. 
um, the, uh, a, a rock, a, mm -hmm. a household, a temple, um, a, a pasture, all of these different beautiful um, ways of, 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 of that come closer to what the church truly is. Yes. Do we have to have government? Do we have to have society? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But the reason for that, the, the society exists for the sake of the family because the family is the fundamental society. And, uh, and what, and, and I think so much of what is driving uh, these, these divisions in the church today, and especially with regards to the SSPX and the division that has happened there is the, the church is viewed in a predominantly uh, political mm -hmm. or business-like kind of a way. Um, and the, the Holy Father especially is seen as a kind of figurehead or CEO, CEO yes. less as an object of devotion or the church. You know, a group of people and uh, societies needs to also be seen as an object of devotion. Um, we're right. not, it's the, the Catholicism is not just a matter of the head. It's a matter of the heart. And, uh, and we have to, re we really need to rediscover uh, that because when we embrace um, the effects of schism in our lives it, um, within the church, it will play out within our family. And it's something I experienced at a very fundamental and personal level that, that the, the divisions in the church, and if you welcome those into your home and that becomes a part of your faith life, that will actually bear fruit into your family as well. So let's, let's, um, let's rediscover the heart of Catholicism. Let's rediscover its devotional aspect. Um, and I think so much will be healed from that. Great points, Andrew. Uh, Dom, what about yourself, brother? Yeah, in conclusion, I would just say a lot of people think reform comes with planning and doing, uh, but that's a very modern way of thinking about it. I think reform comes with a proper way of being. And so the key here to the way forward is word and sacrament. So uh, confession and Eucharist for sacraments and for word, are you reading and praying scripture? That is the solution to the reform we seek. Mm -hmm. Well, guys, again, uh, God bless you and your loved ones and your, your friends, everybody in your circles. Uh, thank you for joining me tonight. It's been an absolute honor, privilege and blessing. I actually have a show uh, coming up with Roxy Beckles. She's a new Catholic YouTuber on the scene, a.k.a. that black Catholic chick. So I'm going to be talking with her uh, coming up in about a half an hour. It should be very interesting. If you guys can check that out. But uh, definitely uh, like, comment, share and subscribe. I want this to be spread far and wide because of its uh, supreme importance, especially right now. So, um, guys, with that, I just want to say that you've been tuned into Holy Smokes, Cigars, Catholicism, and Conversation. Let my prayer and let my prayer arise in thy sight as incense. I'm your host, Dustin Quick. This was episode 88, SSPX Roundtable, with Dom from the Logos Project, John Salza, and Andrew Bartell. Uh, guys, it's been an absolute ple uh, pleasure. Thank you again. I'm going to end the broadcast in three, two, one.